Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. That famous refrain of Psalm 26, verse 8, challenges us still to appreciate the great gift and privilege and prerogative that has been ours this evening. And I know that as we each reflect upon that blessing, we do continue to think of many who are suffering due to ill health or in fact are hindered in other very serious matters, but yet you and I can be so thankful, so appreciative we've been able to come together this evening. As is often the case, we're blessed not only with many of our number, but uh, several visitors who have come our way as well. We want you to know that you are our honored guest, and we're certainly thankful that you're here. And we hope that our worship service, our time spent together, will not only be of benefit to us, but more significantly, be an appropriate honor and great respectfulness to the name of God. We here at Pippin have continued through our reading through the Bible this present calendar year, and as we noted this morning, our New Testament reading continues at this moment to be in that book of Mark. It is for that reason tonight, you may have noticed, that our lesson will be drawn from Mark the 6th chapter. These comments might well, though, prepare us to look more carefully at that which is to follow. In Mark chapter 6, we might have noted there was an incredible busyness about the work of the Master. From that very opening stanza in that chapter all the way through it, we find first one activity immediately followed by another. And sometimes the efforts were so busy, matters became so entrenched in orderliness that you and I noticed in the reading tonight, there was actually a statement by Jesus Himself, Come apart and rest a while. That in fact is the title I selected for the lesson this evening. What about the placement of that statement? the organization that surrounds it, and perhaps matters that might be beneficial for you and for me even in this present day, seemingly so many centuries removed from those events. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, I know that these statements that are written there and these that I'm about to make are by no means new, nor are they by any means a surprise. But modern life has a rather extensive set of demands, doesn't it? We often find that matters close in on us from every side. There seemingly are incessant demands from all quarters. And in the midst of that busyness, in the midst of that frenetic and chaotic set of activities sometimes, there is a very, a very real danger. And that's the danger that our Savior, in fact, incorporated in the very message that we'll study tonight. And so it is, as we look at that, you'll notice at the bottom... Just a few of what seemingly current health professionals sometimes tell us that can be a consequence of this kind of life. An increased stress level, there's problems with one's digestive tract that can lead to health issues and heart problems. It can also lead to any number of other matters that are very hurtful and harmful in many ways. Tonight, what are then about the Lord's statement, rest a while? What did he mean by that, and what was its proper place? As we begin that lesson, let's do so as follows. First of all, it would certainly be fair and right to make a brief comment about the nature of work as the sacred scriptures present it. None of us certainly understand that God is against work. But rather, you'll notice even he himself set before us an example we notice that for six days he himself labored. And we remember that as he did so, all these creative activities in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, 
we find the creation of things from light all the way to the humans themselves, Adam and Eve there on day number six. As you look at all those matters concerning work, consider some of these brief statements. You'll notice that upon His creation of Adam and Eve, God gave them tasks to perform. They were told in Genesis 2.15 to dress and to keep the garden. Their life in paradise, if you please, included labor. It included work. It included that which could keep them occupied so that they would be productively and efficiently engaged in that which was in accordance to the law of God. You and I know, though, that that was but one of a many passages that might well be mentioned. Second, you might appreciate that famous passage from the preacher himself in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. There in the 10th verse, we remember he said, Whatsoever thy hands findeth to do, do it with thy might. An encouragement to appreciate where one's talents may lie and to be engaged in the employment appropriately of them. Isn't it interesting in light of verses like those two? We find in the Scriptures, in the wonderful Word of God, encouragement to the busyness of you and I, tempered with thoughts like these. Let him that stole steal no more, that he may have to give to him that needeth. That famous passage of Ephesians 4, verse 26 you and I, as we think about those who perhaps are given to being thieves, Paul said that it would in fact be an admonishment to be busy, to labor with one's own hands, and in so doing that you might not only provide for yourself, but to be able to provide for those who are also in need. That constant concern on the part even of others. Isn't it interesting, in addition to that passage, in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10, we find there that amongst the problems that the Thessalonian church was facing was this one. There were some who desired apparently to do very little, if anything. They didn't want to work. They may have been motivated by any number of other matters, but we can at least say this. Paul said, if any will not work, then neither should he eat. And we find then here these individuals in Thessalonica, their laziness wasn't excused. Their slothfulness wasn't excused. They were admonished that if you expect to eat and are able to do so, you need to be busy and you need to labor and to work. Perhaps it's fair to say in light of that too, that nature of work appreciates in us that the Bible really frowns noticeably upon that which you and I would call slothfulness, that which might be labeled as laziness. In Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse number 6, we find an example from the animal kingdom. We will remember that amongst the various creatures that are mentioned, we find there a heightened consideration of the ant. And in fact, we as humans are admonished, Go thou to the ant, thou sluggard. To that one who has a tendency to laziness and a tendency to less than his or her diligent efforts, what does the ant accomplish? The inspired writer went on to say, making preparation appropriately in summer for the winter to follow. Making preparation by virtue of diligence and organization for the potential problems that will follow thereafter. Amazing, isn't it, that even in the confines of the ant, we find lessons that in fact the inspired writers were so quick to mention. Not only is it true in regard to the ant, but in Proverbs 20, verse number 13, 
we have here one of the interesting statements found in that book about certain things that are not to be loved. As often as we think about that marvelous attribute of love, and it is sweet to think about the love for one's spouse, the love for one's children, the love for the other avenues such as heaven and Christ and God. Here is something we are not to love. Love, not sleep. Could you and I fall in such love with sleep that we sleep our life away? We become so enamored with this which really takes us away from productiveness in the part of the ways of God. There we're admonished, don't fall too much in love with sleep itself. Isn't it interesting that in light of a statement like that one, we find the interesting and very encouraging pattern of Jesus. In John chapter 9, verse number 4, in the midst of what could have been a heated discussion, Jesus Himself put out any potential problems. When He admonished those of that day, and you and I as well, that I came to work the works of Him that sent me while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. Even Jesus understood by the parallel of that day that, of course, there was a time for labor, but there's a time to cease from it. In Philippians 2, verse 12, all of us are admonished, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Those aspects and those avenues and those considerations maybe are summarized very briefly in that text of Titus chapter 2. Speaking of Jesus and how the implication of His life extends to us, we're reminded there that He, speaking of Christ, gave Himself for our sins, that He might purify to Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That adjective zealous identifies those who are eager, enthusiastic, and excited about good works. Those good works, perhaps again, set the opening plank of what shall follow in our lesson this evening. We have certainly emphasized the biblical attributes of work, albeit briefly. But now to return to that passage that we saw in Mark chapter 6. It was read for us just a moment ago, a very interesting set of episodes and events. Verse number 30, And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus, and told Him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. As you and I reflect on the earlier portions of Mark chapter 6, we remember that Jesus had sent the apostles on what sometimes is called the limited commission. They were sent to heal the sick and to cast out devils. They were sent to, in fact, do any number of matters encouraging the very nature of the kingdom of God. They were sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew is quick to remind us in Matthew chapter 10. As we observe, though, those disciples returned. They came back to Jesus and shared with Him the success they had enjoyed. They shared with Him what they had taught and what they'd done. Wouldn't it have been interesting to have been present and listened to them speak about, this is what we did in that city, and this is the great success that the gospel knew in another. And one by one, you appreciate with me that amongst that that was shared were some interesting concepts like these. Notice again the successes enjoyed. They had healed the sick. They had cast out demons. 
they had set forth the power and the directiveness of the nature of the God of heaven and the kingdom and the characteristic of the Messiah, they had in fact settled the minds of so many who had wondered about the greatness of those events. Needless to say, that success had some consequences, not the least of which was the large number of folks now that it would come to them. Once word got out about healing the blind and healing the lame and casting out demons and healing other kinds of physical ailments, don't you know that there were so many that were circling about Jesus and the disciples, so many who were now about them requesting things, it would have been exceedingly difficult to carry on with what one's, shall we say, ordinary life might have been. You'll notice that in verse number 31, Jesus had these words to say to them. And He said unto them, this is Jesus speaking to those who've returned, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. Come ye apart into a desert place. Go to a place that's a bit more secluded, somewhat more solitary, a place in which it is not such enamored with the nature of busyness, and rest a while. In the midst of that discussion, did you notice with me that the Lord said, Come. Jesus was going to go with them. He wasn't just sending them away while He continued with the labors and the efforts and the work. He was going to join them. And isn't it interesting as that verse closes, He says, by way of explanation. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. There were so many making requests and so many demanding their attention. There wasn't even time to share a meal. There wasn't even time to partake of nourishment to maintain their strength and stamina. It is for that very reason Jesus said, Go into a desert place, come and rest a while. The interesting features that surround that idea in many ways, will be that which we consider through the remainder of the lesson this evening. You'll notice perhaps one more idea before that particular passage closes. The very next verse says, And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. You'll notice they followed the, the statements of Jesus. They followed the orders. Unfortunately, at least in one respect. In the verses that follow, we learn the crowd saw where they went, saw them board the ship, saw basically the direction they were going. And it says on the land, they ran ahead of them and were waiting for them when they got there. So that which would have been the attempt, you'll notice that these were so interested in the attention of Jesus, so interested in the healing and the other things, they actually found a way to get there anyway. But I would submit to you the plan was a very interesting one and worthy of our consideration this evening. It is for those reasons that the following slide now comes before us. What about this command, this statement that Jesus made to rest a while? May I submit to you here are some thoughts, and I'd like to preface them with these comments. Several surveys done over the last several years have indicated that Americans, and we aren't the only ones, but certainly we are partly guilty, that we tend to work a lot. And I know there are some in our society who do not, but at least many do. 
Many, in fact, it seems, can be so busy that they sacrifice elements of their family, or at least time with them. Sometimes they sacrifice, perhaps, time devoted to God. Perhaps they sacrifice other matters in life that otherwise would be extremely significant. Maybe it's in light of that that we do at least find a background in these verses that we are studying this evening. Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. Doesn't that at least immediately indicate rest has some importance? A time of respite and a time of, as Jesus would call it here, restfulness is a significant matter. Let's build upon that thought in the following way. It is entirely possible to work so much that it is a damage to one's own health, and in fact it harms perhaps those that love you the most. Your wife, your husband, your children. It can really impact them in an exceedingly negative light. Isn't it interesting in light of those matters that you observe again that God... After six days of labor, creative activity, and you and I would be quick to say it was a very successful time. Genesis 2 verse 1 comments that he rested on the seventh day. We'd be quick to understand he didn't rest because he physically needed it, but rather it was a template, a pattern, an example for all forevermore to understand the importance and significance of appropriate rest. Shouldn't we also say in light of that, that the Old Testament, and in fact the New as well, has additional comments about that very concept. You remember with me that in Leviticus 23, among other Old Testament passages, there is a rather extensive description of one day a week known as the Sabbath. And although that day was to be directed towards spiritual matters, it was a day of reflection, a day of inner consideration, but it too was a day of rest. There was to be no servile work done that day. It was to be a day in which one turned one's attention to something besides that kind of labor. Doesn't that continue to highlight for us the fact that if God saw fit to incorporate that one day out of each week dedicated to that, is it not still valuable to consider the importance of rest? You and I have noted in our Sunday morning studies in Leviticus, as well as in earlier chapters in Exodus, how that as often as that Sabbath was mentioned, and on every occasion God highlighted the fact there was to be no work done that day, you and I have noticed that that was to be well understood by those of the ancient Israelite community. As we arrive at the book of Numbers soon in our New Testament studies, we shall find in Numbers 15 there is a rather sad saga of a gentleman who gathered sticks on the Sabbath. He was not resting as God had commanded. And we well remember that when the edict and the verdict was delivered, that man, of course, his life was lost. God meant what He said. And in that era, rest was that valuable and it was not to be overlooked. As you give thought to that attribute of rest... Might we say again, in light of what some recent surveys have indicated, you and I could find ourselves under the pressures of providing for ourselves and our family, and that by itself is a noble goal. But if we're working 95 hours a week to accomplish it, 
Have we gone too far? Are we ignoring the importance of the rest that God has sought fit to encourage us to consider? Well, there are individuals in our land who seemingly work so much they forfeit, as we noted earlier, some very powerful and useful things. That opening comment that rest is important perhaps could well be closed by recollecting this. As you and I summarize the statements of Scripture, wasn't it true that Jesus Himself in Mark chapter 2 highlighted and commented the nature of the Sabbath and affirmed it in such beautiful and powerful ways like this? As He spoke about Sabbath and its relationship to man, He affirmed that man had such a usefulness and utility in relation to it. For isn't it true, the Sabbath was made for man. It is a time to reflect upon the urgency and the greatest charter and character of all. Let's look at that in light of the next comment. Not only is rest important, but notice the damage that sometimes can come when we ignore that attribute of rest. I entitled this section simply that of relationships. I believe all of us are likely familiar with that first comment I chose to make in that section. We've each been aware of a young child who, when that child becomes irritable, often it's because he or she is tired, often it's because he or she is hungry, and as soon as you fill their belly, as soon as you allow them to take a nap, they are as sweet and peaceful as ever. May I say, sometimes that same demeanor can be characteristic of we adults as well. If we ignore our health, if we work so much that we refuse to eat, we don't eat, we don't rest, sometimes our body will soon tell us in very strong warnings that we have made a mistake. We need to realize Jesus here gave His apostles this statement, You come apart into a desert place and rest a while. Have you ever been in a position to where you were so hungry due to a continuous effort that that food that you took in was so vital and needful, you were almost to the point of collapse? You and I can imagine as these disciples shared with Jesus the successes that they had had, and now the people were so thronging them that there was not even time to eat, they were going to burn out if they didn't make some changes pretty quick. In fact, that's one of the statements we often find in the Scriptures, isn't it? It is possible to burn out. And sometimes that can even happen with respect to the work of God. An elder who works so much in relation, or a deacon, or a preacher, or some other church member, in relation to the work of the church, that they literally burn out. Moses, it seems, was at least along the pathway that he was going to lead to that too. As you and I give thought to that event in his life, what was it that befell him in Exodus chapter 18? On that occasion, we recall that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had come to him bringing his wife and his two sons. But as he came, he watched something. He watched how Moses went to work every morning. And he watched what took place with regard to Moses throughout the duration of the day. And this is what he saw he saw Moses sitting from morning until evening. And he saw the people lined up for it seems as far as he could see them waiting for Moses to judge the cases that existed between them. 
This was Jethro now, Moses' father-in-law, witnessing this. And isn't it interesting that he had the directness and the consideration and love for Moses to say, the thing that thou doest is not good. Talk about a father-in-law that had some advice. Son, what you're doing isn't good. It's not healthy for you or them. You're going to wear away if you keep working like this. And not only that, he said, these people that are gathered around you, it's not good for them to have to stand up all day long like this. Jethro then proceeded to give some wholesome counsel to Moses, didn't he? And we remember what that was. You select out men and you teach those men. And then you let them be rulers over thousands and rulers over hundreds and rulers over fifties and rulers over tens. And then you let them take care of the cases, but the hard ones can still be brought to you. Wasn't that good advice? Wasn't that very efficient and organizational advice? You and I can see in light of this second comment, it would have been a very damaging thing to Moses' relationship, maybe with his wife. He would have been too tired when he came home to do anything. Isn't it interesting that that advice... Jethro did add one more thing. If it be the will of God, do these things. Since Moses did put into practice what Jethro suggested, it appears that God gave his stamp of approval to what Jethro said. It appears that God approved that efficient organization. It might well be in light of that that we can again observe that you and I might find ourselves so enamored with effort and work and labor that we don't spend the time with our children that we might wish and later will regret it. It may be we don't share the time with our wife that we would much wish and then later we regret that. As you and I do pay attention to the biblical statements about work, let's never overlook these statements about rest as well. Comment number three. In addition to these statements so far, You'll notice that these comments perhaps lead us to an interesting statement of organization. We touched in part upon this earlier. Let's build a slightly deeper foundation if we might. Isn't it amazing that as God has so showered us with abilities and capabilities, that in the usage of them we can always at least ponder this truth. Every week has only 168 hours. By more work, we can't add any more hours to it. But it does challenge us to be efficient users of those hours that we do have, doesn't it? And that efficiency perhaps can be encouraged, and it can in fact be in fact set before us in some of the ways that you and I can now see. The New Testament encourages us along these lines, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We find that text in Colossians chapter 4. That statement in verse number 3 encourages us to again buy back, redeem the time, because again those days are evil. One of the comments that might well have been made, as you and I think about the workings of the devil, he knows the church consists of the saved people on earth. He knows that the church is the body of Christ, Let's face it, He already has the world. 
He has multitudes who follow Him. Some of them aren't aware that they are, but they are in His kingdom. But it's the church that He targets. You and I so often know that in the knowledge that we have of the Bible, He knows that He can't bring in someone and overtly preach false doctrine. We'd spot that too easily. We'd spot that too quickly. And we would stamp it out with great immediacy. But if you ask the devil, how could he go about capturing some of those that are in the church? What might he do to garner their attention? Well, surely one of the ploys, one of the tactics would simply be this. You gradually consume more and more of his or her time. You let them get busy with work. Let them get busy here and there. And if you do, some of those attributes that have led to that spiritual strength will wane. They won't pray as much. They'll be too busy. They won't read the Bible as much. They'll be too busy. And little by little, if we can get that enough accomplished, soon we'll have them. They'll be given to materialism. And they'll be given to the other pursuits of life and not God. That kind of description maybe would be easily characteristic of many in our land. May you and I be cautious and may we be careful. Even though those talents and those matters related to work are vital, may we not forget that Sabbath. Those statements about the Old Testament and the reason for that rest often were linked to godliness. It wasn't just rest for the sake of rest in many cases. It was rest so you could reflect on your blessings. It was rest so you could give thanks unto God who allowed you to enjoy them and never forget whose hands gave them to you. Many times that's what that rest ultimately involved, wasn't it? No wonder then as we consider those things that might encourage us in that way, it brings us to this matter of organization and efficiency. In your life and in mine, are there more efficient ways we could do things that relate to work so that we might have a few more minutes to read passages of the Bible or pray with our family or perhaps involve ourselves with our children or wives? That's something to think about, isn't it? Jesus did say, come ye apart into a desert place and rest a while. That rest that they were intending to enjoy was a rest that allowed them to at least for a moment recognize that although preaching was important, although healing the sick was important, although casting out demons was important, rest was also important. And maybe in light of that rest, the closing thought on this slide highlights the fourth small lesson tonight. The topic of godliness. As we noted just a moment ago, in many of those Old Testament passages in particular, we find that the context indicates that that rest was associated with an opportunity to draw nearer to God. Maybe you can remember a time 40 years ago or 50 years ago for, for some of us in which you can think about that time when on most Sundays there just wasn't nearly as much work. You saw more families spending time together. You saw more individuals perhaps reflecting on visiting those in the community who were in need. Maybe we recall times when there was more of an emphasis on Bible reading and church services. Nowadays, that seemingly has passed, hasn't it? Now we seemingly are so busy. 
But as we think of it in that way, may we not ever be so busy that we do not have time for God. For if we don't have time for God, we know what shall happen in the day of judgment. We know that if we deny Him here, He's promised that He will not confess us there. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. Isn't it interesting, in light of that, these comments about godliness now are easy to make. If you and I become so busy with our profession, our career, or anything else in many ways, it can become harmful to our relationship with God. It can become, in fact, disastrous in relation to that relationship. Perhaps for that reason, I would ask you to think about that statement found in Acts chapter 6. You recall the scene with me in the opening verses of that chapter. There, the church had already enjoyed a notable success. The day of Pentecost had come. There was, remember, about 3,000 that day that obeyed the gospel. By the time we reach Acts 4, verse 2, 2,000 more had been added. By the time we reach Acts chapter 6, we aren't told how many there were. But it's safe to say that the apostles were busy. They had many that were demanding their attention. We notice, though, a problem arose. It is in some ways ironic. This was the first major problem apparently the church faced, and it was explained like this. Some of the widows were being neglected in their daily ministration. In that provision, in light of those in need, there were some, inadvertently apparently, who were not being attended to. These Grecian widows, they began to murmur. There were some who began to complain, as perhaps we can well imagine. But isn't it amazing how the apostles dealt with that problem? You remember that the apostles, rather than them giving their attention to handling that problem, they said, you look you out seven men among you and let them have charge of this matter. We will give ourselves to prayer and to study. The apostles recognized that something was more important for them there were others who could attend to that need. There were others who could see that those widows were being served. There were others who were well equipped to handle that. The apostles knew that their calling and their charge involved a higher purpose than this. We'll give ourselves to prayer and to that part related to the Word of God. Maybe you and I can then easily consider this fact. As we think about busyness and the chaotic nature of what sometimes can seemingly be our lot, may we always remember that God does endorse rest, proper rest, appropriate rest, and He does so for the purpose of keeping our spiritual fires burning brightly because we understand that those labors in this life are but for a while. And isn't it still a sweet, sweet thing to remember Revelation 14 verse 13? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Talk about come ye apart and rest a while. We all look for the grandest rest of all one day. After all the toils and all the difficulties that have associated to the work of this life has vanished into that which no longer bothers us, we understand that we shall be able to rest. And isn't it ironic that that nature of heaven itself is called the grand rest in Hebrews chapter 4? To look for the rest of God. Don't you want to be able to rest there? 
I know that in our right mind, we'd be quick to say we do. Tonight, as we've studied about come ye apart and rest a while, let's close our lesson then with these concluding thoughts. We began by highlighting the significance of work, and no one of us would lessen that thrust. But we've also learned that there is an importance to rest. Because as we reflect upon it, we've learned it's valuable to ourselves, it's valuable to our relationships, it's valuable to our service to God. Perhaps along the way, that'll demand our organization and our efficiency. But may we always look upon Mark chapter 6 and remember with fondness that phrase in verses 30 to 33, Come ye apart into a desert place and rest a while. As you and I look forward to that great eternal rest, might I ask each of us, just as surely as I ask myself, are you currently prepared for that rest? For it's safe to say there will be no rest for those that do not die a Christian. Those that don't die in the Lord. They don't have anything like rest to look forward to. All they have is the tragedy, the sorrow, the regret, the agony associated with disobedience to God. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, we're told that heaven waits for those that have obeyed the gospel. Have you attended to that need in your life? Have you then appreciated that you can look forward to rest eternally if you have? Tonight, that plan of salvation demands, just as Jesus said, except you believe I am He, you shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. He's commanded that we repent of our sins, Luke 13, 3. He is furthermore commanded that we confess Him as the Son of God, Acts 8.37, and then we are immersed, baptized in water for the forgiveness of our sins. In Acts 22.16, that's admonished and commanded. And once we begin that journey, may we live faithfully until death, using our talents and abilities appropriately, but resting when needed and when appropriate. Tonight, if you have walked away from your first love, You've not been faithful. You've brought shame upon yourself in the name of Christ. Don't remain in that condition. Jesus wants you back at His side. You can disappoint the devil grandly tonight if that's your case. If you'll come forward and let us pray for you, pray with you that God will forgive you of those sins. Tonight, this hymn of invitation has been selected, and we'll be delighted to sing and to help anyone if you only let us know and come forward while together we stand and while we sing.